This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at either films from days gone by, or sometimes we connect films to things that are happening in the movie world. And and uh, this week, we're taking a look at the career of one of our favorite actors who sadly passed away recently, and that is Alan Arkin. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a freelancer and film enthusiast here in Halifax. My name is Carson Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my voice might be familiar to you because I am frequently on CBC Radio, and I have a column there on the morning show called The Knox Off. And we'll be looking at various films from the course of Mr. Arkin's career right after this. So, Stephen, you know, I have long admired Alan Arkin for the breadth of his career. He's been making movies since the mid-60s, as far as I know, and and has had a, you know, a really rich uh, and an amazing career just doing every it feels like it's come in chapters you know there he had the leading man career the quirky comedy career he had the the great supporting roles career and he's always made it work for him and sadly passed away recently but I know that he's actually one of your genuine favorite actors of all time and I have to ask I guess why what was it a about him, his work uh, that really grabbed you? Or was it the fact that he has a connection to where we live? It's a little of all that. Although the connection to where we live, the fact that he was a part-time Nova Scotian, uh, is something that didn't happen until sort of later. I didn't become aware of it until later in his life. And there's there's just something about uh, the certain... uh, authenticity and also kind of a relatableness that he brought to the roles that he played. He usually played kind of a put upon underdog, I guess. And, and that was just, uh, that was just something that it's, it's easy for viewers to relate to, but there's also this incredible intelligence that lurks behind every one of his roles. And, uh, and he also had a lot of, of breath. I mean, there's a certain type of role that is kind of the Alan Arkin role. And we've seen him play it uh, as a young man and even into his older years when we started to see him show up in films like So I Married an Axe Murderer and, and Little Miss Sunshine, which is uh, one that he got quite a, quite a few accolades for. But um, but uh, there, there was more to him than that. He could he could play a villain if he wanted to. We'll, we'll see that in one of his early films. Uh, and there's just uh, there's just this charm and uh, and likability that he brings to those roles. You know, he, he could play a bit of a schlemiel, uh, but you always kind of respected him, and the, the, he usually stood up for what he believed in, or he was able to at least stand up for himself in one way or another over the course of uh, of these different roles, especially in something like, say, Catch-22, the film that really kind of cemented him as a leading man in a lot of ways. Yeah, he, he's got a, a real character, and, and watching these films again, we, we saw a few of them here, and we'll get into the the ones we both watched, but uh, we want to start just by giving kind of an overview of some of his his career highlights. And you know, I, I read that he had not he was nominated six times for an Emmy, though he never actually won, which is too bad because if he did, he would just be a um, would be a Grammy away from an EGOT because <laughs> he got the Tony and That's he right. got the Oscar, right? So uh, and he was so, he was a musician, so mm. you know the chances of of, of getting a, a Grammy award were you know not out of the question. Yeah, he won a BAFTA. He had a Golden Globe. I mean, it, it could have happened. It could have happened. It didn't quite, but it could have. He, I know he was born in Brooklyn. He grew up in Los Angeles. And he was in a band called the Terriers. I have to ask, Stephen, do you have their record? I don't have any records by the Terriers. Uh, and they were uh, famously in a movie called Calypso Heatwave that uh, 
that was his uh, first feature film appearance. And, and I think there's a trailer on YouTube. I don't know if the whole film is online, but there's a trailer where you can catch a glimpse of him playing with the group. But I do have an album uh, by a later folk band he was in called The Babysitters that did folk songs for little kids. And it's, uh, they had a, a couple of records. I've got a kind of a best of the babysitters and they're very funny, uh, very clever records that you can play for kids without getting sick of them. So I guess that was the intent of, of that particular record, but it's all, it's all done with uh, a mix of like acoustic instruments and toy instruments and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, as I, we mentioned earlier, he did uh, have a Nova Scotian connection. He had a, a home, summer home, I guess, uh, up in Cape Breton, up on, uh, in somewhere in Inverness County. Uh, but uh, early in his career as a musician, he played uh, a couple of instruments on a record by Ed McCurdy, who was a New York folk singer who eventually moved to Halifax because uh, he had problems. He had lung problems and he couldn't handle the air in New York City. So he moved to Canada, uh, I think, in the 1960s. And he was a broadcaster and, and folk artist and uh, famously lived in Halifax for the later years of his life and was quite a, a noted figure on the, the local scene. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so more connections. Maybe it exactly. was. Maybe he was the one who said to him, "Come up to to Nova Scotia and, and check it out." Well, I suspect that's probably very close to the truth. I don't. I don't know for a fact if that's true, but it seems like uh, he and Ed were friends, and Ed, you know, living in New York, probably, and who apparently, from what I've heard, was very active on the phone. He was always calling up his friends and talking with them and, and stuff, and, and back back in New York, and and he probably told him to come up for a visit, and he liked it, what he saw, and. Bought a place uh, also near the the monastery, uh, Gampo, up in Cape Breton. He was a practicing Buddhist later in his life, and I'm sure that was a factor as well. Mm, okay, fair enough. Um, so, you know, I looked through his filmography on IMDb, and uh, uh, there are a number of films I think you probably have seen that I haven't, uh, <laughs> and including the first one, I guess, that, that it wasn't like a big, a huge breakthrough for him, but I know it was... Uh, he went, he got nominated for it, and that's the uh, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming! Exclamation point from 1966. What's this one like? Well, yeah, that was his first kind of breakout role, as far as the general public was concerned. He'd he'd been uh, involved in Second City. Uh, he was doing improv comedy early on, which certainly plays well into his later career as a comedic actor and director. Uh, and then uh, I guess uh, Norman Jewison, who directed uh, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Um, uh, must have seen him in in some plays in um, in New York City and and picked him to play a a Russian uh, submarine officer when in the case of a uh, a submarine that goes ashore in a New England town kind of a Martha's Vineyard it's, it's a fictional community kind of like Amity and Jaws but it's a, a fictional community that's ostensibly like Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, although it was actually filmed in Northern California. But uh, it really does look like a small New England fishing village and, and summer vacation spot. And uh, so essentially what happens is, is that the, the, the sub uh, goes aground and the Russian uh, sailors come ashore and they mix in with the, uh, with the locals with uh, predictably hilarious results. And, and Alan Arkin plays the Russian officer. He, of course, he had uh, his parents were, uh, I believe, um, uh, Russian immigrants or descended from from Russian Jewish immigrants, so he was able to speak Russian and and do a credible uh, Russian accent, and uh, and he's very funny as kind of like the voice of reason amidst the hysteria between the the Russian soldiers and and uh, the Red Scare amped up uh, villagers who are trying to call in the Air Force and, and blow up the sub or whatever. They think they're being in, invaded when in fact it's just a mistake that caused this uh, sub to run aground. So. 
uh, you know, and he's very good in it. He's he's very funny and he's very very quick uh, quick witted in, in the course of the film. And of course, it stars uh, Carl Reiner, who of course was also a you know kind of a comedic mastermind uh, at that time from your show of shows and the Mary Tyler Moore show, and uh, and and uh, also uh, Jonathan Winters is 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 terrific as uh, kind of the um, the deputy um, policeman who is uh, is caught up in the hysteria. So if, if you get a chance to see it, of course, Norman Jewison is a Canadian director. Uh, and, you know, it was the, he's kind of a middle-of-the-road director, but most of his films are pretty solid. Uh, you know, he well, has, especially from that period. Yeah, right? and, and he just he just had a, an, an eye and an ear for quality. And, and he was also a very collaborative director. People loved working with him. Uh, he's, and I met him. He was here for the Halifax Film Festival one year, and it was just lovely to sit down and have a chat with him about some of these films. And, and from what I gather, you know, he's just, he loved working with actors. Actors loved working with him. And, it uh, you know, it wound up classic films like Fiddler on the Roof and Moonstruck but this is earlier in his career and he, he definitely had a, a feel for comedy this this film is very manic and and lots of energy and lots of life and and uh, and it's it, it kind of like, it makes me kind of think a little bit of uh, it's a mad 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 world except it's half as long and maybe twice as funny <laughs> okay all right that's a recommendation uh you saw something that I a film of, of Arkans that I had never even heard of called Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins well there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> it's not very good, is what you Not saying? that it's not very good, but it's just it's just been out of circulation for so long. It's a it's a film that uh, uh, I you know it's one of those ones from the seventies that these films that kind of just went into limbo, I guess. And and it might be because of music rights. At one point, they're in a bar, and you can hear the actual recording of Jolene by Dolly Parton playing in in the background. And I'm I'm guessing that songs like that on the soundtrack uh, you know make it prohibitively prohibitively expensive to put out on uh, on home video. So uh, it did show up on TCM and I uh, managed to record it off there and save it on a DVD-R and, uh, you know, rewatched it recently. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a shambling Shaggy Dog 70s comedy. And we did a whole episode on Shaggy Dog movies a while uh-huh. back. And uh, so, you know, you know what a fan I am of those kind of movies. And, and this is definitely uh, in that ballpark where Alan Arkin plays a, a, a former uh, veteran who gets kidnapped by these two women played by Sally Kellerman and Mackenzie Phillips from One Day at a Time, daughter of Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and Papas. And uh, they basically kidnap him and, and take him on this excursion through Vegas and, and Colorado. And, and um, you know, they're kind of looking for their fortune and he's just waiting for his pension to kick in. And, uh, and he's also kind of a, an alcoholic with a dead-end job who just, you know, welcomes the adventure, I guess. And, and so, you know, there's a certain chemistry between uh, him and the, and the two, uh, two young women. And, and that's charming to see, but also some interesting uh, uh, adventures that they get into along the way. All right. So there's Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins. Uh, you know, a, a film that I've never seen, but I know it was kind of a big hit in the day. And I, I understand that maybe it hasn't aged that well. And that's Freebie, Freebie and the Bean. Bean. I, as soon as you said yeah, it has not aged that well. And he's not that fond of the film, apparently. Uh, I think mainly because it just involves a lot of his role just involves a lot of yelling <laughs> between <laughs> him, uh, between Alan Arkin as a. Um, I guess a, a Latino police detective, uh, you know, so there's your red flag right there. Uh, you know, I think mean, he's the bean of the title. And then freebie is uh, James Kahn as a detective who's a very cheap and always like kind of looking for scams on the side sort of thing. And, and they get involved uh, in, in various crimes, which are just an excuse to have these drawn out 
elaborate uh, and very elaborate car chases, which are kind of the highlight of the film. Certainly, that's how they sold it. I, I actually remember seeing ads for this on uh, on TV back when it came out in the I guess the mid seventies. And, uh, you know, I was about seven or eight years old when this film came out. So I wasn't old enough to see it in the theater, that's for sure. But uh, it was one of those films that everybody talked about. There's one scene where a car goes sailing off a freeway and crashes into an apartment building. And then there's a gag when the, the, the couple are in the, the apartment are watching TV when the car comes crashing through the wall. And, you know, so there's like a little punchline there. And it's directed by Richard Rush, who's probably best known for The Stuntman with uh, Peter O'Toole, a uh, really terrific uh, film about the magic of movie making. But uh, this is uh, an earlier film that he made when his career was kind of in a bit of a slump. And uh, so he could probably probably use the hit uh, from this. Um, but uh, we're seeing, if you, if you don't mind, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty un-PC, certainly very 70s, uh, but worth checking out if, it, if you get a chance to see it either on streaming or maybe on TCM. Right. Okay. Well, I think in the 80s, uh, Arkin went, you know, went sort of from leading man to supporting roles, though he was in a uh, prominent um, TV movie called Escape from Sorbable. Yeah, with Rutger Hauer. Yeah, which I remember probably because I was a big Rutger Hauer fan. And, uh, and, you know, I was trying to see at that age, I was trying to see all the things that Hauer was in. And this was one of those intense sort of Holocaust movies as I'm remembering, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, it was kind of an epic. Uh, it was a, it's, it's like clocks in at over two and a half hours. I think it was like a, kind of a big TV event, like a two-parter. Mm. And, uh, you know, but but a very, a very interesting portrayal of a real event. And, and it's, it's, it's definitely one of his more serious uh, performances. And, and Howard is very good in it as well. Uh, but it is based on, on, a, on a true story where there was an organized uh, breakout from one of the concentration camps. And uh, I, I don't know where you'd see it today. I think it, I do remember it showing up on home video and even on Laserdisc. So uh, there must be copies out there somewhere to, mm. to see. Yeah. Um, and then he, of course, he was in, you know, prominent uh, films like Edward Scissorhands yes. and The Rocketeer, which I haven't seen in a long time. I need to go back and revisit the The Rocketeer. I don't even remember what role he plays in that. Yeah. Well, the, the, the in the 80s, uh, he he kind of dropped out a little bit. Uh, like, I mean, Escape from Sobobor was a pretty rare role. It seemed like he was only in a movie every couple of years. Uh, Joshua Then and Now, based on the um, on the Mordecai Richler novel, is another uh, good uh, role from that period. But yeah, when we get into the 90s, uh, that's when you really start seeing the kind of the comedic character actor kind of phase begin and and uh, to be honest i can't remember what role he plays in in uh, the rocketeer either I, I you know i assume it's some sort of sidekick or father figure or something like that but i i have not seen that movie since it came out and uh you know i remember enjoying it but finding it a little flat maybe yeah well it was i think it was aimed for a young audience i think so um, but it was done without a trace of of irony and it wasn't trying to be hip or anything and maybe mm. as a result maybe it plays better today than if it had been trying to be campy or smart alecky or, or what have you. That's possible. Of course, he, you know, made, uh, he was part of the ensemble cast of Glenn Gary, yes. Glenn Ross, which was was a pretty amazing film at the time and, and was well beloved, you know, this tale of men, salesmen and their, you know, and their, <laughs> their problems. Uh, I, I guess, I think most people think about that film, they think more probably about Jack Lemmon and a and and about um, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, and yeah. Pacino, yeah, yeah. Those are the guys. But but uh, Arkin is good in it too. He is. Uh, I mean, uh, he he definitely works well in an ensemble. It's always interesting to see how he bounces off different kind of actors. Uh, we didn't mention the in laws, um, which we didn't watch for this show, but but is a is a real favorite of mine. And and the the relationship he had with Peter Falk, 
uh, in that film was the the way they were able to bounce off each other was was pretty remarkable. I, I get the sense that he's a very collaborative actor. That he's not, he, even though he can do a kind of a showy, shouty kind of role, uh, he's very much about the the collaborative process. I get. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, you mentioned So I Married an Axe Murderer. Of course, he was also in a supporting role in Gattaca, which is a terrific science fiction picture. I was not that big a fan of Little Miss Sunshine when it came out. Maybe I need to revisit it. I, I recognize that he was good in it, yeah. uh, sort of the grumpy, curmudgeonly, you know, elder in the in the van. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I know he and he won an Oscar for it, which you know he was probably long time coming. But uh, yeah, I haven't watched it since. Have you? I have not. I, I think he's probably the best thing in the film as the kind of crotchety grandfather. Who's, who's, who's kind of on the kid's side. Uh, but you're, it, it's not something I've been compelled to return to. But uh, after doing this show, maybe I will give it another, give it another shot. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Argo, which was another yes. Oscar-winning film. Another film I haven't watched again, mostly because I really disliked. I actively <laughs> disliked Argo. But I had a personal... Despite the Halifax connection. I, I, I had, a, I had a, a, a personal connection with the original story that That's it's right, based yes. on because... My father worked in the Canadian Foreign Service and, uh, and you know, knew the people involved in the, on the Canadian side in Iran who helped get the Americans out. And this film was basically saying that it was all a CIA thing, that, they, that the Canadians really didn't have that much to do with it, which, <clears throat> pardon me, I uh, beg to differ. But uh, anyway, you know, it's, it's yes. one of those family lore things. Uh, the, the, the time that the Canadians did really good and, and helped a bunch of Americans. Uh, so anyway, but, but you know, uh, Ben Affleck saw things differently, and so it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Oscar came calling. Um, anyway, yeah, so more recently, Arkin was in a, a series called The Kaminsky Method, which is not a series. I, did, you, did you watch that show? I didn't watch it. Now I'm wishing I did because I don't have Netflix anymore. And and uh, it, was, it was him and uh, Michael Douglas, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to imagine that pairing. But I, I could see that working. I could see that working pretty well. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. And, uh, you know, and, and other smaller roles and things. But he also was a director. And this yes. is something I didn't realize. And he, he directed something. I know you've seen Little Murders, which when, when did that come out? That's uh, oh, early 70s. Okay. I think, I think like 72, maybe. It's it's basically uh, a, a, an expanded film version of a play by Jules Pfeiffer, who most people are probably know him as a cartoonist, uh, who, who did very insightful and, and sarcastic kind of cartooning. Um, and uh, you know, very much about uh, modern times and, and relationships. I probably they probably ran in the New Yorker. I, I can try to remember where exactly where Jules Pfeiffer's cartoons uh, ran. But um, basically, it's the first thing he did after uh, Catch Twenty Two. And uh, so this was a play written by Pfeiffer, which was not successful in its initial run. I think it, it, it only had a short run off Broadway when it first came out. But then it was a big hit in England for some reason. And basically, it's about um, you know, a, a photographer who's kind of down on his luck and depressed about the the state of society in New York City in the early 70s uh, when the city was kind of falling apart. There's a lot of crime and the city's disgusting and polluted and, and uh, you know, the power keeps going out. They have the rolling brownouts that were, uh, I guess, uh, a very familiar experience in the early 70s where the power would either, the lights would go out completely for you know minutes at a time, or they would just kind of dim because the the power levels would would drop down, and, and because the infrastructure was falling apart, you know, kind of like here in Nova Scotia, <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's something to relate to. Uh-huh. And then uh, he meets this woman who um, 
she decides that uh, she decides to turn him into a project. She's going to mold him into the ideal man, and uh, he resists her at every turn. But he's fascinated by her and uh, kind of keeps up with the relationship. Uh, and then we get introduced to more kooky characters as the film goes along, and uh, you know her family members. Vincent Gardenia plays her very. Uh, very outspoken dad and she's got a brother who's who's kind of introverted and uh and 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 a little twisted and 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 then we get a nice scene uh by donald sutherland who plays the the preacher who who marries them in a very uh very uh let's say unorthodox uh kind of ceremony and then arkin himself shows up towards the end as a as a paranoid uh police detective spouting all these different theories about why society is falling apart and why people keep shooting at them and and why there are snipers just firing at random out of windows and so it, it's it's a very very dark very strange kind of film uh and and i think uh you know arkin's kind of feeling his oats as a director so everybody is fairly over the top over the course of the film elliot gould also produced this uh he actually bought the rights to the play and then got his friend uh, Alan Arkin to direct uh, after he'd only made a couple of short films. And it feels like he maybe he's a bit out of his depth. Everybody is, is kind of playing it to the rafters and it can wear you down a little bit, I think, over the course of the film. But it does say some very interesting things and it goes in different directions you don't expect. And some of the, uh, some of the sort of solo performances, you know, like the scenes by Donald Sutherland and the great Lou Jacoby, great uh, New York comedic actor, those, those scenes all seem to pay off uh, in their own way over the course of the film. And, and, and uh, you know, I also found the relationship kind of, uh, kind of charming in an offbeat way. And welcome back to Limbs of Your Ears and our look at the career of the late Alan Arkin, one of our favorite actors in serious mode or comedic mode or even behind the camera. He was a, a very versatile and creative person who, who had a lot of other interests beyond uh, the world of, of film and the stage. But we're going to focus on some of his films. And, and uh, this, uh, next, this, next, <laughs> this next film is uh, kind of a, an outlier for him. It was a big hit. Uh, from 1967, but a very different role for him. I, I, I don't think there's another role quite like this in his filmography um, where he plays uh, a pretty nasty character in a thriller called Wait Until Dark, which was based on uh, a hit play about a blind woman who's terrorized by a group of hoods trying to find a doll hidden somewhere in her apartment that is uh, filled with contraband drugs. And they're trying to find the doll and... and um, they're playing all these all manner of tricks on her to confuse her and trick her into um, revealing where the doll is hidden, whether she knows it or not. And that's kind of the the, the cat and mouse game that uh, we experience over the course of this film. And it actually starts in Montreal, oddly enough, with uh, with uh, the courier bringing the doll uh, stuffed with heroin to New York City via Air Canada, and. Uh, you know, the, the crooks are looking for it in uh, the home of Susie Hendricks, played by Audrey Hepburn. And Alan Arkin is, uh, is rote. He's, he's a psychopath, but he's also extremely intelligent, very tricky, uh, and also, um, also a master of disguise, as it turns out. Uh, it's funny, watching this, uh, I thought I knew this film, but there's a lot of stuff going on in this film that I had either completely forgotten about or, or just didn't, didn't, you know, I just didn't remember some of the stuff in this movie. And uh, he's, he's teamed up with two other crooks that aren't really on his side they're just kind of they're they're all after the same thing they figure they might as well work together or they won't get anything at all and we've got uh, richard crenna uh who most people probably remember from the rambo movies uh, as mike talman and uh, great character actor jack weston as carlino and um 
basically they uh, they play various roles trying to deceive uh, Audrey, Audrey's character Susie into revealing where the doll is. Although initially she doesn't actually know where the doll is, so uh, that's the kind of back and forth of the psychological drama happening in this film. And uh, she has to kind of use her wits and the fact that uh, she can uh, move around in the dark and they can't, and that uh, becomes kind of a major plot point later in the film. Yeah, this is my first time watching Wait Until Dark, and I, I, you know, longtime fan of Hepburn, so I I was interested in seeing it, and, you know, seeing these two actors work together, directed by Terrence Young, directed a number of Bond films. Yes, interesting choice. Lots of things to get me interested. Yeah. Um, I'm generally not that much of a fan of films that that adapt from plays and then don't open it up in any way. Yeah, this Um, is based on a play by the author uh, of Dial M for Murder, Frederick Knott. So, you know, that film, this is only, you know, this is only a decade after Dial M for Murder. So obviously he's still a a known quantity as a playwright. And and so I guess this was a a hot property at the time. Yeah, well, unfortunately I found it awfully, awfully (laughs) contrived from the start. Like, okay, so I was a little confused by the setup for just the relationship between the three men. You mentioned how they're not really on board with each other, but how they find their way into this flat and the the origins of its material on stage are just painfully obvious from the start. The start, and so I found it hard to shake that off. Um, you know, the the doll comes on a flight f- from a woman from Montreal, and she's dead now. And and then there's a wo- she's hanging in the apartment. Uh, the photographer and their wife, as you mentioned, she's blind, played by Hepburn. And there's this monstrous child named Gloria <laughs> oh, who comes into their apartment to smoke cigarettes and just behave badly, and she's just awful. Uh, and then the criminals set up these elaborate and wildly implausible and unlikely pretenses to figure out whether Susie, the blind woman, knows where this doll is. And Arkin, we get basically, he's dramatically made up to look and sound like Mark Twain at one point, yes. and then plays the man's, the same man's nerdier son. If she's blind, what does it matter matter that he goes to these lengths to dress up? He could just change his voice, you know? Um, And and then they get dialogue, like Richard Crenna's character says, this is the big bad world where nasty things happen. And later he's like, I'm through playing around. And it's just like, it's so, it's just awful. Like, I, I can appreciate that... You know, the thriller tropes and, and, and cliches from the 60s were very different than they are now. But I was just like, I just I, I was hurting my head by rolling my eyes so much with this stuff. Uh, and it just it just felt it's funny how the set feels so artificial, so clearly a set. But then we get these exterior locations on St. Luke's Place in Greenwich Village. And it's actually like the the address of the place that they're in is the actual place they give. So that's not something they would do anymore. The brownstone, yeah. Yeah, the brownstone, because I was able to look on Google Maps and find it and find the street, which is, you know, hasn't really changed that much. I mean, the trees are, it was shot clearly in fall or winter, so the trees are all bare. But, uh, you know, in the photos on Google, they're, they're all uh, blossoming, and it, it looks quite robust and, and lovely. But, uh, yeah, also I learned apparently... Um, a few doors down is where the Huxtables of the Cosby Show lived <laughs> nice. on that same street. There's an interesting bit of trivia. Um, you know, and then, and then there's the whole element of the suspense thriller concept based around a character's disability, which has also aged quite poorly. So, you know, I enjoyed some of the final scenes between Hepburn and, and Arkin. They kind of 
they square off at the very end, and that stuff is pretty suspenseful. Yeah, I will, that's the, I that's the best say. stuff in the film, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and it's the performances there that they're really committing to, and I, I really like that. But uh, I did not really enjoy the film, I got to say. Yeah, the bratty kid and all the stuff with the phone booth and, and the, the, the really clunky dialogue. Uh, like the special Made in Canada doll. Like nobody talks like that <laughs> in reality. And, and, and characters are keep, they keep talking about the doll and why it's important. And, you know, they say her husband will go to jail if they don't have the doll and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it's, it's, you're, it, you're right, it's way too convoluted. And, and, uh, and it's, you know, if it wasn't the fact that it was, if it wasn't Audrey Hepburn Alan Arkin in this, then it would probably, you know, be an even poorer viewing experience. But the, the play, the play continues to be performed by mostly like, you know, repertory cinema theater, summer stock, that kind of thing. Like, cause I guess, cause it's a single set play and, and, yeah, it, and you I, get a chance to be kind of showy and edgy. You know? I can understand like on, in theater watching this with live actors, it actually might be quite entertaining. And especially if they can match that sort of level of suspense that the, the film actually does a reasonable job, especially at the end, of conveying. But uh, as a feature film, I found it just, yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't suspend my disbelief high enough to get over these, these huge bumps. Oh, yeah, and her husband's a complete jerk. Yeah, well, there's that too. Yeah, he's he's awful. I mean, from Zimbalist Junior, it's like, must I be the perfect blind lady? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, take a yeah. hike, buddy. Yeah, seriously. Um, so let's move on then to a film that I hadn't seen since probably it was in high school because I remember I had to read. I had like a modern lit class in high school, and we had to read Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two. And uh, and once we'd read it, the teacher showed us the film, and I remember thinking to myself. Geez, I really enjoyed that book, but I don't know. I don't think I'm enjoying this movie much. Uh, But now, with this gap of some 30 years since I was in that class, (laughs) uh, I actually really liked the film. Like, watching it again, I was like, holy cow, is it well shot. Like, it's just, it's it's incredible to look at. And the visual stuff is is astonishing in a way that uh, I had completely forgotten. It's it's a gorgeous film, and I'm, I'm... Unfortunately, I didn't write down the name of the cinematographer, but um, on the DVD that I have, uh, Mike Nichols and Steven Soderbergh discussed the film at length, and they talk about, you know, the DP. The DP was very particular. I think he was British, but now I'm drawing a blank. And, uh, you know, it was very particular about shooting things at the exact right point of the day and, you know, getting a lot of magic hour kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and especially when it stands in contrast to the, the, the nighttime stuff in Rome and the deserted streets of, of what I, I, I'm assuming Rome, they could have shot in some other yeah, Italian maybe, city. Maybe, but, uh, is it somewhere in Sicily? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, cause they, I, it's supposedly in, in the South of, of Italy, but may, yeah, it could have been Rome for but sure. It's a, it's a large Italian city from the looks yeah, of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in contrast to the, the the dusty you know does you know desolate looking landing strip where they, where they wait and to to go and fly their missions uh it's 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 a gorgeous film i would i, I only have it on dvd i buy a blu-ray in a heartbeat but uh but it's it, there's a lot of care that went into this film and 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 a conscious attempt to kind of not just film the novel that that there was a, a distinct style and narrative happening here that's you know, certainly harkens back to the novel, but but also uh, you know puts a puts the story in a bit of a time blender, which probably confused people at the time. I mean, the movie was not a not a hit, and you know, of course, Mash came out. Mash was the huge anti-war hit, and this was kind of seen as the the lesser stepchild 
of that, of being adapted. MASH is a great movie made from a fairly lousy novel where people saw this as being kind of a lousy movie made from a great novel. But, but as time has gone on, I think uh, we've, uh, filmmakers or, sorry, film goers have kind of caught up with this film in terms of its narrative structure, which uh, is a little, seems a little more conventional now than it did at the time. And it's a lot easier to follow um, as it kind of slips in and out of uh, the time of uh, Yossarian's uh, stay in, in Italy and, and, and the various sort of trauma that he's experienced that lead him to, you know, eventually try to find his freedom. Yeah, I mean, he is a bombardier, right? He's part yes. of this squadron of American bombers in World War II. They're stationed there in Italy. He wants to be grounded from bombing runs, so he appeals to the base doctor. The doctor says he has to ground people who are crazy or mentally ill, and you'd have to be crazy to want to keep flying missions. But if you request to be grounded, that means you're not crazy. <laughs> and that's the catch, the catch-22, which gets repeated again and again in the story, like the ways in which there are these these unbelievable conditions, and then you end, you end up stuck. You end up not being able to do anything. And uh, this cast is incredible. Um you know, my favorites are Martin Balsam as Colonel Cathcart, Bob Newhart as Major Major, Anthony Perkins as the chaplain, Tapman, uh, John Voight as Milo Minderbinder, who is just terrifying. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yes. he, he is the, the, you know, the capitalist-driven uh, uh, guy, who the, the soldier who is convinced that he can make everyone rich, and, and himself included, and eventually becomes like a fascist leader. <laughs> it's just, it's unbelievable, his kind of character arc. Uh, and then especially Charles Grodin uh, as Aardvark, and also on board, young, young Martin Sheen, young Art Garfunkel, and an impossibly young Bob Balaban. Oh my gosh, I did, you don't even recognize him. Yeah, it is wildly star-studded. And, you know, the thing you were saying about how it's aged so well, and I think it's because it's the absurdist humor, right? I think we have a lot more patience and appetite for absurdity now in, in, in humor, uh, and in a way that... Um, you know, that, and that kind of thing is actually, there's so much humor that doesn't age well. And then there are some humor in here, like, like how the, the airman's lust for Orson Welles' assistant, for example, is just like, it feels like something out of a cartoon, but the absurdity never seems to go out of style. In some ways it just gets funnier. Um, so yeah, I loved seeing that. Uh, and and you get the point pretty quickly. It's about military bureaucracy, about people in positions of power who have no experience and don't want the jobs and lie to get out of obligations. No one takes any accountability. Everyone ignores the bloodshed. It isn't until Yossarian starts to misbehave and show up in places without his clothes yes. that, that anyone seems to care about any of his problems. Yeah, and, and the Milo Minderbinder uh, subplot, I mean— it, it, you know, it seemed like in the in the book, it's just a subplot, of, of one of many. There's there's a lot of different threads going through the book, and and somehow Mike Nichols and Buck Henry, who was also in the film and is is great as as Martin Balsam's kind uh, of kind of aide de camp, I guess. Um, you know, they kind of seized on that and amplified it more so in the movie, I think, than it is in the book, because he just saw that as the way that things were going with, you know, unchecked capitalism and 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 how it was just going to ride roughshod over all of us and. Uh, 
Sadly, they were right. Yeah. <laughs> that part of the film, that part of the film, seems way more prescient now than it probably did at, at the time that it came out. Yo, absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um, I love the scene where Yosarian pretends to be the dying kid for the family who's come all the way from New York. Yes, <laughs> but his, but their their child has, has or their, their I mean, young soldier dude has died. So I, I thought that was really well done. Um, as we mentioned, the cinematography, I mean, the location cinematography, all the planes, and they're so loud and, and the real base, planes, real planes, and they're taking off and landing constantly in the ocean, the beach, and the Italian town and. I loved it when Minderbinder makes the deal with the Germans for the cotton, and then he gets the squadron to bomb their own base uh, as part of this deal. Uh, and, and you know, it is, it is a satire, as you say, not only of war, but of deal-making, of capitalism. It feels so progressive to see it now. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, that scene towards the end of the movie, Yossarian walking through the city after he's tried to tell the sex worker girlfriend that the, her, her boyfriend, the airman, has died— and, and it's this vision of, like, Sodom and Gomorrah in a way that I was just yes. like, what is happening now? It's just crazy. Yeah, the Fellini-esque nightmare that takes place uh, when, when they go into the city is, is, is uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a remarkable sequence and uh, in a film just full of them. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, on the commentary they talk about how, you know, Alan Arkin was so perfect as Yossarian. Like, he just so fits, you know, the idea of how people saw the character in their mind's eye when they read the book. And, and, but uh, I can't remember, I read that uh, either it was Arkin himself or maybe Nichols thought maybe he was too perfect that, that he embodied the role so well that that became kind of the, the kind of role that he would continue to get through the rest of his career. And uh, you know, there, you could, there are certain connections you can see uh, through the roles that he would play in, in, uh, the following years. I mean, his character in Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins. It could be Yossarian as a as a war veteran caught up in this uh, crazy, uh, you know, hitchhiking scheme that he's in because he's you know it opens at a veteran of foreign war kind of party and he's completely drunk and you know drinking while driving and stuff like that. And he could very well be like the disillusioned older version of Yossarian who gets caught up in this situation. So there there, there is kind of a kind of a continuity there uh, that follows from this film because he is so perfect in this one. Okay, so here on our last uh, segment here of uh, Lens Me Your Ears uh, podcast and show, big show, we're talking about, uh, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, Ed Sullivan. Um, we're talking about Alan Arkin and his career, and we're talking about a few of his films that we've both seen. And uh, we took a look at something that a film I had never, uh, once again, something lost in his filmography that I'd never even heard of. It's called Simon from 1980, written and directed by Marshall Brickman with Thomas Baum, a longtime collaborator with Woody Allen. And, you know, that seems, that becomes pretty clear as you start into the film because it's so reminiscent of Sleeper. Uh, so yeah, it's certainly the, the early funny movies, as they say, uh, including everything you've ever wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. Uh, it's not as goofy or as uh, slapsticky as those films, no. but it very, I, I consider it this sort of very Jewish New York sense of humor, highly intellectual and knowing. And, you know, you've got this incredible cast, including Wallace Shawn, probably as early, it's not as young as I've ever seen Wallace Shawn. And Madeline Kahn is terrific. Um... So Arkin plays Simon Mendelssohn. He's an academic at Columbia who 
also happens to be very insecure and very ambitious about wanting to make his mark in the world, a group of five highly resourced but mischievous intellectuals, scientists, with the help of an AI named Doris, voiced by Louise, Lass Louise Lasser, <laughs> decide to perform an experiment basically on the American public by brainwashing Simon to believe that he's the product of an alien spaceship, that he is an alien visiting the Earth, and he is going to give you know, give people uh, advice and, and change change America from and save it from all its little annoyances. And he becomes a celebrity, uh, eventually upsetting the people in charge. And, and yes, those petty annoyances, including Muzak and elevators. Uh, he says that lawyers who lose cases have to go to jail as well. Uh, ketchup in little packages. Air dryers replacing towels in bathrooms. I mean, it's there's a whole litany. And uh, it's very, very dry. Almost feels like a bunch of skits tied together. But, uh, you know, I, I did enjoy its its peculiarities, uh, you know, and I mean, a longtime fan of those early Woody films. I can't deny that that probably played a role in my appreciating this as well. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's interesting to see Marshall Brickman kind of unattached to uh, to Woody Allen and just see what he comes up with on his own. And, and you can you can sort of see his influence on those films that he worked mm. on, like Sleeper and so on. And and uh, there's certainly uh, you can see why they work so well together, because there's clearly an intellect at work here that, uh, you know, that in the era of comedies like, say, Animal House and the Blues Brothers, uh, this was on a completely different wavelength. It may explain why it wasn't that big a hit and why it's kind of fallen into obscurity. But, uh, you know, it does say a lot about mass media. At one point, uh, Simon winds up uh, in the arms of a cult that worships television. And it says a lot about our obsession with the small screen in, in a way that still feels very relevant today and, and is very funny. And, and Adolph Green, uh, who is the um, part of the great uh, Broadway team of Condon and Green, who wrote musicals like um, like The Bells Are Ringing. I think they wrote The Bandstand with uh, with Fred Astaire. But uh, he... Um, Adolph Green plays the leader of the cult, and he's very funny and very, very appealing. And and he'd also be a longtime friend of Alan Arkin's from his uh, New York theater days, I'm sure. So there, there's a lot of camaraderie uh, felt amongst the cast. Uh, we also have uh, Austin Pendleton, who was in um, Catch Twenty Two. He's the kind of the leader of this think tank where where um, Simon gets in the sensory deprivation tank, and they, you know play around with his mind to convince him he's an alien. And uh, William Finley, who is the Phantom of the Paradise, plays one of the scientists. I mean, he's not in that many films, so it's great to see him show up here. And Max Wright, who is the father on ALF. Oh, right. <laughs> I was wondering where I knew him from. It's, That's right. It's yeah, kind yeah. of maddening to see, because it's hard to associate him with anything but playing Willie on, uh, on ALF. But here he is playing pretty much the same kind of character. Uh, I mean, you know, with that face and that voice, it's hard to imagine him as anything else, but it's fun to see him here. And, and also Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster himself, plays a uh, military officer who's uh, put in charge of the search to get Simon. Once he starts broadcasting uh, his, um, his manifestos on the air, he takes over the airways and they're trying to shut him down and by any means necessary before he destabilizes the entire country. And uh, so the, you know, the, the whole military conspiracy aspect of things is, is pretty fun and pretty timely. But uh, I, I feel like it, it's aged kind of well in some, some aspects just because it is um, 
you know, kind of pressing about about uh, mass media worship and that kind of thing. And and I and also like the fact that it's got these strong comedic uh, uh, female roles for Madeline Kahn and Judy Graubart, who plays uh, Simon's girlfriend. She's a, a, a music professor. Um, and most people would probably recognize her from Electric Company, which was a show that I adored when my age was in the single digits. So it was great to see her show up in, a, in an adult comic role. Yeah, and Arkin himself... I mean, he he's really having fun here. Like he's he's being very physical. Like there's he's been in a sensory deprivation tank in one one scene, and they pull him out, and then he basically is evolving. And the whole thing seems like a like a spoof on altered states. Uh, yeah, this definitely <laughs> seems to, to be akin to that film for sure. Yeah, it's so goofy. It's so goofy, but a, a lot of fun. I I mean, I I don't want to give you the impression I didn't enjoy it. I did, but uh, it just it was very peculiar. And only for certain, I think, tastes to to plug into. Yeah. And, uh, I got my copy. I saw it on TCM, uh, Turner classic movies is where I saw it, but I think it might be available in physical form from, uh, maybe the Warner archive series of, uh, of DVDs. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's on some platform somewhere you can watch it. Yeah. Um, so we got one more film we want to talk about, and this is from, uh, Arkin's, you know, 1990s supporting actor days. And uh, this is one I suggested that we watch just because I remember it being so much fun. It had been a long time since I've seen it, probably since the 90s. That's Gross Point Blank from 1997. It's on Disney+. Plus. Um, and, you know, Martin Blank, played by John Cusack. Here's someone who we don't see enough of these days. He's depressed. That might have to do with his job satisfaction. He's a professional killer, after all. And his last two assignments, they went poorly. But he's got <laughs> one more this weekend coming up. This is a very sort of uh, compressed time period in Detroit, where he grew up. And this works out well so he can attend his 10-year high school reunion. Now, his assistant, Marcella, played by Joan Cusack, and it's so cool to see brother and sister working together in this film, uh, sets everything up for him. Uh, in what looks like a 1930s detective agency. It's called, their company is called Pacific Trident Global Shipping. Uh, and just before, you know, he goes to this reunion, he checks in with his therapist, Dr. Oatman, played by, yes, you guessed it, Alan Arkin, who is terrified of him because he knows what Martin does for a living. Yes. <laughs> and he's constantly concerned that he's going to be, he's going to be killed. You know, you know, for what during, he knows, yeah. Yeah, for what he knows. And it's, their their dynamic is really funny. And, you know, Martin finds out he can't really go home. The house where he grew up has been turned into a convenience store. His mother is in psychiatric care. His father is dead. It's, it's like this is a movie that could very well be a very dark. I mean, it is dark, but it, it, the tone of it is managed in such a light way. It's so funny that um, I couldn't help but just love watching it again. I, I, it, it, it aged, you know, talking about humor that doesn't age well. This had aged so well that I was kind of almost shocked. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed revisiting this film. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I loved it at the time. It has one of the hippest soundtracks imaginable. Yeah, early you know, 80s. Yeah, uh, where, you know, you go for The Clash, The Toots and the Maytals, Massive Attack, Violent Femmes, The mm-hmm. Jam. The, the specials, specials, The Cure, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's like, do they make this movie for me personally? Because mm-hmm. it's got so many people I love in it and this great soundtrack and it's got that great balance of action and uh, and comedy and and you know, I really did like John Cusack a lot as an actor at that point in his career. You know, things are a little, you know, he's I don't know what happened or where, where things went with him personally or professionally, but but he was on a roll at this point. And yeah, and and, uh, and and you know, he, this is you know when you look at films like this and say anything where he just played that kind of 
slightly depressed loner goofball kind of roll to the hilt. He was very good at it. And, and of course, uh, Dan Aykroyd plays his main competitor. Uh, the grocer. Uh, the grocer. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a great role for Aykroyd. It just plays to his strengths of paranoia and, uh, and vigilanteism and all that kind of thing. And, 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 and Aykroyd's great in it. And he gets to be, deliver all this great rapid fire dialogue about, about uh, his job and stuff. And, you know, he's like trying to form a union with, of hitmen <laughs> and, 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 uh, Martin keeps saying, um, you know, you know the phrase lone gunman? <laughs> it doesn't really work <laughs> with a union. Um, yeah, that's right. It's just, uh, it's just so smart and so well written. And George Armitage had just come off of Miami Blues. Oh, um, right. Which, which is was... another great sort of comedy, action, thriller, crime, yeah. caper movie. Also quite dark, too, in a funny way. Y- yeah, very yeah. dark, but, but and, and well, just perfectly cast. And, and Armitage, you know, he'd just come out of a, like a 10-year vanishing act. He'd been out of movies since the late 70s, and then he comes up with the with these two films and he'd come out of the Roger Corman school of filmmaking, you know, making these kind of exploitation films in the in the early to mid seventies. And then but then you know is able to make these uh, these studio pictures that are but they're unformulaic. They have unique characters and situations. They're unpredictable and they just have a lot of fun energy, you know, while they explore these these issues about society and violence and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, full credit to Cusack for for doing such a great job here. I mean, he really had an edge to him, a sort of fidgetiness in his his solid, like, leading roles where you just felt like, like if he wasn't a smoker on screen, you felt like as soon as the camera stopped, he'd pick up a cigarette because he had that kind of, like, he, you know, that sort of addiction-related personality or type. Yeah. And I've obviously, I don't have any idea what he's like in, in real life. I don't have any sense of his personal life. I mean, you said, you know, you were like, uh, what happened to his personal or his professional life? Because we just don't see that much of him on screen anymore. Uh, though he did recently sort of surface to tweet about um, the strike in Hollywood. Yes. And he had some pretty pointed things to say about about how actors and writers get treated in Hollywood. Uh, and that was good to hear from him because he's clearly an activist spirit. But uh, but no, I don't really understand why it is that he isn't working more. Because um, he was so good then. And you know who else was really good is the delightful Mini Driver. I was just going to go there. But yes, yeah, let's I talk mean, about Mini Driver. I mean, for, for like two or three years there, she was the it girl in Hollywood, the all-American girl who just happened to be a Brit. Uh, <laughs> you know, see, I feel like, I feel like in, a, in, a, you know, in an encyclopedia, it's like see also Emily Blunt because it took about you know, seven or eight years later and Emily Blunt showed up and she could do you know, a uh, spit and polish American accent, and no one would know that she was, uh, you know, what she was a Brit. Uh, well, the good thing is that although Driver, I think, kind of disappeared from Hollywood for a while, I think maybe she went back to the UK and was working there. We're seeing more and more of her these days in various things, and I'm glad to see her again because she's she's lovely. She's really great nice. here. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I remember first. I think I first saw her in Circle of Friends. With, yeah, uh, sure. Was it Chris O'Donnell? Yeah, Irish film, right? And she was she played kind of the wallflower girl at a at a private school or a school in Ireland or something like that. And you know, but she was clearly lovely. Like, you know, you had to buy her as kind of this mousy uh, nobody, but she clearly had you know much more charm than that. But she made it work. She made it work in that film, and you know, uh, but quickly you know, was able to, to morph into more adult, more romantic kind of roles. And she's fantastic here. And they really have a nice chemistry uh, between them. I mean, I mean, you can understand why he'd be kind of obsessed with this hip DJ girl who's, you know, just uh, got all the right answers and is, yeah. is just as just as smart, if not smarter than he is in, in so many ways. And, and, uh, and they have a, they have a nice um, 
they have a nice chemistry where you can believe that they're just kind of catching up after 10 years without skipping a beat. And yeah. I, I like that attitude between them. And, you know, I like the, the scenes with their dad, you know, where he's, he's kind of very sarcastic and, and very drunk yes, and, yes. and kind of not that enthusiastic to see him come back into her life. And, you know, and, and they have this great uh, bantering where he catches up on her life and her failed marriage. And then, you know, she finds out that he, instead of taking her to the prom, he went and joined the army. Yeah. Where his, right. where his special skills and aptitude turned him into an assassin. Basically. Yes, because he had a certain personality type, which was uh, was well well uh, well used, and and uh, and it, you know, of course, it comes up later, and it becomes uh, the 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 conclusion of this film does involve some violence, which uh, but also keeping a bit tongue firmly planted in cheek. Incidentally, uh, another Cusack shows up, and the the other actor in the family. You know, there's lots of Cusacks out there, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Jeremy Piven, who you know, apparently, again, this is all. Uh, uh, third hand, but uh, um, yeah, it could were... be apocryphal, but apparently Piven and uh, Cusack did have a falling out at a certain point around the time that Piven became very successful with the uh, Entourage show. Oh, okay. And so, uh, yeah, they, they stopped being buddies. Um, anyway, there it is. The you know Who knows what, what the actual facts are, but these are the things that, uh, that you read about from time to time. Anyway, what we should say, as before we finish up, is that Arkin is great, even though he's not at that much he is so good in this yeah I, I love the scenes where he just calls him up for some guidance in the middle you know if he's in the middle of a shootout or whatever and you know and then and oatman uh the psychiatrist just tells him breathe meditate and don't kill anybody <laughs> <laughs> advice that he does not take <laughs> And so ends our uh, conversation, our look back at the work of Alan Arkin, who will be uh, certainly missed, uh, and we have certainly enjoyed his many years of work on the big screen and small. And uh, you've been listening to Lends Me Your Ears, uh, and we are available. If you want to reach out, you know, feel free. We're on Facebook, and uh, we're on Twitter as Lends Me Your Ears, and Stephen, you're also on Twitter, aren't you? Yes, I'm at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And don't forget to watch The In-Laws if you've never seen it. That might be the great Alan Arkin film that we didn't talk about with Peter Falk. That, that is the must-see of, uh, of, of his career, I think. I'll take that to heart because yes. I've never seen oh it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Serpentine. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway. Whatever that means, I will, take, I will take it to heart. Uh, I'm also on Twitter uh, named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities uh, where we record it here high in the, in the Student Union building at uh, Dalhousie uh, and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all you do to make us sound professional uh, despite our best efforts. Um, <laughs> thank you again for listening and we'll be talking about film again very soon. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.